most of you know, my favorite sermons to prepare throughout the year come on Easter and Christmas because they're the easiest sermons to write. Oh, I'm sorry, we don't have our cue up here. That's your cue to laugh. Thank you. They're my least favorite sermons to prepare throughout the year because I feel like they are impregnated with so much anticipation and expectation of what they are supposed to be about. People don't come to the Christmas season with uh, any misconceptions about what we're talking about. They know that Christmas is about Jesus Christ being born. While the reality is, is that for many people they don't understand the significance of Jesus Christ being born, they know that Christmas is somebody's birthday. Over the past three years, there has been a lot of loss in our church. Our little church has experienced a lot of loss. We've lost sons and mothers and sisters. I want to ask the question, how do we celebrate Christmas with an empty chair? Maybe that's not the joyful message you'd be anticipating this season, but I think it's the timely message that we need to hear. I appreciate Rachel talked about the visual of God reaching out and holding us, and as she said that, Psalm 139 came to my mind. The first four verses say, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Verse 5 might be unusual language and unusual language in English. What does it mean to be hemmed in? It's literally the picture that Rachel was describing for us. God hems His people in before and behind and on top of them. You know, Hebrew is such a visual language. It's it's filled with so much imagery that we can somewhat lose the meaning here. But it is the picture of God's sovereign hand literally encapsulating the person that He loves. God isn't surprised by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. When I think about Jesus being born and what I believe is often overlooked this time of year, it is why Jesus came to be born. The Bible says Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. It's for this reason I want to draw our attention not to the nativity, but to the purpose of Christ's advent in Luke chapter 15. Our text will come from the first seven verses in this chapter, and I'll invite you to turn there now that as I read out loud and preach from the text, you'll be able to follow along with me and to make sure that what I'm saying is the real deal. Before we read, though, let us pray and ask that God might give us understanding. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege and opportunity to open up your word. God, I pray that you would help me. 
Help me to lay aside the distraction and the burden. Help me to not be encumbered by the busyness that comes with waking up in the morning and getting dressed and getting breakfast and making my way to church and making sure there's gas in the car before I get here. God, whatever happened this morning, let me lay it aside now that as I come to your word, my focus would be on you. God, help me to eliminate any distraction that may exist in my thoughts that I might be focused on how you would have me live in response to your word. I pray, Lord, with the words of the psalmist, that you would open the eyes of my heart, that I might be able to behold the wondrous truth found in your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Luke chapter 15 begins, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. All of God's people said, you guys are getting good at that. Um, as we look at this text, and, and this might be frustrating for some of you, but on Wednesday nights we've been going through a study of the life of Christ where what we've been doing is taking all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and harmonizing them together so that we can tell the story of Jesus' life in chronological order. So far, we've had 63 lessons through the life of Christ. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 15. And now we're looking at it on Sunday morning. Who did Jesus come to save? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. As we look at this passage, we find that there were people that were drawing near to Jesus. These people were tax collectors and they were sinners. The very people Jesus came to save, sinners and tax collectors, those that had been despised in their community, those that had been looked down as unrighteous or unworthy of the truth of the gospel, were they themselves drawing near to Jesus. I think it's important that we pay attention to the grammar in this first verse. It is not Jesus that is out pursuing these people, but they are actually drawing near to Him. And, and there's a reason I say that that's significant. If we go back to verse chapter 14, we find Jesus had just had dinner at a Pharisee's house. And while He was there, the Pharisee laid a trap to prove that Jesus was unrighteous, that he was a false teacher, that he wasn't the real deal. 
See, they had heard that Jesus had done all of these wonderful and miraculous things while he was here on earth. He had healed people. He had caused demons to come out of people. And so they brought with them a person that had um, dropsia, a condition of water pressing up on the heart of the lungs or the liver. I think you can have dropsia of the liver or dropsia of the heart. And they invited him to dinner with Jesus. See, they were setting the scene. Here's the Sabbath, a holy day where we're not supposed to do any work. Here's a sick man. Here's a healer. Is he going to work on the Sabbath? As we read through chapter 14, and I won't take time to do this, but I would encourage you to do it this afternoon, maybe before you take your Sunday evening naps, before our church business conference this evening, you can look at what Jesus is addressing. He's addressing all of these people who have been following him up to this point in his ministry. The Jews, those that have been called near. And he addresses, first of all, this false sense of piety that the Pharisees had in inviting over this poor sick man. They didn't really invite him over because he was sick or because he needed to have dinner with them. They invited him over so that they could lay a trap for Jesus. They were addressing the crowd's false sense of popularity that they thought would gain them entrance into heaven. I was popular and well-liked. How could God not like me? Turns out you're much more difficult to like than you would like to think. He addresses their false sense of hospitality. But ultimately, as we come to the end of chapter 14, what Jesus addresses is the Jewish people's false sense of security. Isn't it good that the church today doesn't have to worry about a false sense of security? Can I tell you something? Don't trust the person that tells you that you don't have to worry about your sin. There's a lot of teaching that floats around, especially this time of year, that teaches us that so long as we have faith in God, we don't even have to think about what sin is or what righteousness is or what holiness is. All of these things are really a moot point because we're covered by um, God's grace. God's grace brings us into holy living. God's grace brings us into holy living. If we've truly been touched by God's grace, then we get to embrace all of this righteousness. Naturally, what pours out of us is piety, popularity, hospitality, and even security. But it doesn't work the other way around. As Jesus taught on these false things that give people an expectation that they might be saved, and He said that these are not the things that save you, guess who left? It was the Jews. The crowds dispersed because of Jesus' teaching, and we find ourselves at the beginning of Luke 15, verse 1, where the tax collectors and sinners drew near. As they're drawing near to Jesus, the Pharisees who have just been rejected, just been condemned, just been chastised by the teaching of Jesus Christ, begin to grumble amongst themselves, saying that this man receives sinners and eats with them. How unimaginable that a person of God would spend time with sinners. As I look at this passage, one of the things that stands out to me 
is how very possible it is that this would become a depiction or an image or in some way that it would be a reflection of the church. That we would be a group of people that do not entertain sinners. That we would become a group of people that would not be hospitable to those that are not righteous enough. I could respond with my own earthly wisdom, but as we read this morning in our Sunday school class from the book of Judges, maybe I shouldn't do what's right in my own eyes. Instead, I'll draw our attention to verse 3 of our text because Jesus addresses the issue for us. He told the Pharisees this parable. In the hearing of the crowd, he continues to teach and he tells them a parable. A parable is a story that comes across as an earthly story or a teaching that comes across as an earthly story, but it has a heavenly meaning. The parable that Jesus tells them is of a lost sheep a sheep that wanders away from the flock and Jesus' question to the crowds or the Pharisees is, what man of you would not leave the 99 in the flock to go after this one sheep? It seems like common sense, this is what a shepherd would do. And he would go after them and upon finding him, he would pick up the sheep and he would rejoice and he would bring it back and he would be so glad for finding this one lost sheep that he would tell all of his friends and that they would all rejoice together. Jesus goes after the one lost sheep. That in itself, I think, preaches itself, but let's break it down and start to understand what this picture is. Having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, leaves the 99 in the open country to go after the one. Now, I've never farmed or raised animals, and I wish that I had because I'm sure that I would have more illustrations that I could use whenever I'm preaching. But I do know that sheep are a little bit different than cattle. Sheep are foolish. When I worked at Walmart, I... Uh, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Dang it. I forget that this is being recorded and I don't like putting that on the internet. But well, it's done now. When I worked at Walmart, there was a guy that worked with me. He didn't raise sheep, but he, he raised alpacas and, at, on, his, on his little hobby farm. And he said they were very similar to sheep. Foolish animals. They'd stray off. And, and this is the thing that he was always said amazed him about alpacas. They would bray when they got separated from the rest of their herd or their flock, calling out for the rest of their community and run the opposite direction. <laughs> this astounds me, but you know what? I think there's a reason why the imagery of sheep continues to be used for God's people. When you look at the heartbreak that exists in this world today, and you look at the people who are looking for God or looking for spiritual answers or looking for some sort of connection or looking for healing in their life, those people who during the Christmas season will be more likely to turn to the truth of God, what we find in common with all of them is they recognize an emptiness in their heart. Maybe it's an empty chair during the holiday seasons. Maybe it's just pain. Maybe it's just realizing that the way that they've done life isn't the way it's supposed to be. Maybe it is God working inside of their heart to say that they need their community. I'm a millennial. 
I don't understand Gen Z. They do things that bewilder me. And I know that you know, some of you are boomers and some of you are Gen X and you don't understand millennials. And so we have some common ground here. What I can say is that as I look at the younger generations, there is more longing for community than I think there has ever been in any of my peers. People are crying out for their community. They're looking for them and they don't know where they are. I mean, we just break down the world that we live in and we see how all of this pieces together. We have a generation, and I think Michelle and I are the last to have been born. We didn't have a cell phone growing up. We got them later on in life, still in our childhood, but later on. Well, now we have generations emerging as adults that have literally had access to social media and their cell phone their entire life. They filled their lives with a false sense of community, a fake community. An insincere, ingenuine, not the real deal sense of friendship. I think about Thanksgiving and sitting around with my family and we have a rule in our house, if we sit down at the table, there's no phones. But as soon as we put up the food and I look out at the couches and everyone out on their phones, I wonder if they're texting each other. During COVID, when churches began to make it possible to go to church online instead of coming in person, I remember thinking, church on the sofa will never replace church with God's people. God calls His people into a community for a reason. This sheep that wanders off, the shepherd has a responsibility to care for them. The sinners that came to Jesus, the tax collectors and the publicans, they felt comfortable in God's presence. God continues to use this image of the sheep and He's used it all throughout history. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, He says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Speaking of the people of Israel, He says that humanity and God's people in particular are like sheep, braying for their flock. The Pharisees didn't think that it was... That tax collectors, that publicans, they didn't think these people were worthy of the truth. The Jewish culture didn't even think it was necessary that anyone told them what God's Word said. So it makes sense that in verse 2, they would question why this teacher, why this uh, rabbi would come to these people and why he would entertain them. What they didn't know is that they were the very people that continued to send these sinners away back to their sin. And I tell you what scares me about the church, what scares me about ministry in general. We live in a time where people are calling out for their community. 
I think people are even coming to the church for answers for the first time in decades. And I think the church risks very seriously sending these people away. I think the church has the wrong idea around what discipleship looks like, maybe even what hospitality looks like, because here's the risk. We have the potential to send God's sheep away, braying as they run in the wrong direction, looking for their community. The church is never going to be able to turn a wolf into a sheep. We're not able to do that. In fact, the Bible doesn't even say that God does that. There's wolves and there's sheep. But God comes for His lost sheep. Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you think that there's still lost sheep out in the world? Or are we just waiting for Jesus Christ to come back? If there's still lost sheep in the world, do you think that they're living the way that sheep are supposed to live when they're in a flock? Or do you think they're living the way that the world lives? We don't have any magic glasses that we can put on to be able to decipher who is God's sheep that we might be able to draw them in. All we have is the example of Christ that says that the shepherd goes out and when he has found his sheep, he lays it on his shoulder. He carries the burdens that come with living in this world. And, And loved ones, I'll tell you, the burdens of living in this world are serious. They're condemning. They're hard. When you live the way that the world lives, there's going to be pain and suffering that comes with that. It turns out the reason for God's law wasn't just to instruct us in righteousness. It was also so that what may go well with us would go well with us. The fifth commandment comes with a promise. Obey your father and mother so that you may have a long life. God's word isn't just instruction, but it's promise. When these sheep that belong to God are out in the world and they do not live the way that God would have them to live, they experience financial burdens, relationship trouble, they experience destruction. All of these things come with the way that they are living. What does the shepherd do for these people? He picks up the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, an image of carrying their burden, no longer needing to walk, but he takes their burdens for them. And while he does this, does he chastise them for the pain that they inflicted on themselves? No, but he rejoices that they had been found. He brings them back to community. We have need of a shepherd. And by the way, shepherd is not pastor. Part of the responsibilities of pastors certainly do include being a shepherd. But when the Bible speaks of pastoral responsibilities, the pastor of the church or the pastor of a flock is called the under-shepherd. Our shepherd is Jesus Christ who continues to look after us. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, Peter gives us this insight. He tells us that we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Pastors, the under-shepherd. But ultimately, one pastor cannot look after 99 sheep 
Do you know how you keep sheep in a flock? You make sure they stay by the other sheep. God gives us the church not just so that we have a community, not just so that we have a sustainable model of being a church. He gives us the church because the church is the under-shepherd below Christ responsible for watching after us and going after us when we wander away. The church is who He rejoices with. More than half of this passage is not about where the Pharisees were wrong. It's not about what the shepherd actually does but it is about the response of sinners coming to God. Beginning in verse 5, Jesus gives us this message that when He has found it, He lays it on His shoulders and rejoices. There's joy in finding a lost sheep and calling them back into a faithful relationship with the flock. Verse 6 expands upon those who would rejoice. He says, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. This is a picture of the church who rejoices when any lost sinner, any lost sheep is either restored or comes back, or or maybe even for the very first time, to a relationship with their Savior. Verse 7 expands those that would rejoice once again even further. I rejoiced for finding the lost sheep. The church rejoiced with me. And verse 7 says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 99 righteous persons that need no repentance. This last verse of the parable shakes me. It astounds me. This is where Jesus explains the meaning of the parable. We don't have to read into it to try and decipher uh, strange meanings. Jesus tells us what this parable means. He's telling us that in heaven there is rejoicing that takes place when somebody who is a sinner repents of their sin. While there is less rejoicing when a righteous person has no need to repent. If we extrapolate from this what Jesus is saying, We should compare what the church celebrates today to what is being celebrated in heaven. I don't think that that heaven has stopped working the way that they've always worked. They're under the authority of a God that never changes. I do not think that what people in heaven are rejoicing over is different today than it was when Jesus spoke this parable. But I do think that it is possible that under the failing and faltering leadership of mankind that the church can change the things that they rejoice over. Does the church rejoice more over doing things the way that we always have than we do over one lost sinner repenting of their sin? 
That's a question for us to consider. I won't answer it for you. That's something that you can do on your own time. But I will give you some things that are evidence that would support whatever answer you come up with. You may say, well, we don't celebrate doing things that we always have. And we do celebrate a a lost sinner coming to repentance. Of course we do. We're just waiting for that lost sinner. Loved ones, I don't think that people turn into sheep. I think we're born God's people. I think we're born sheep. When's the last time you have felt comfortable repenting of sin? We'll sit in that for a little bit. Because we think repent in sin publicly? How could I ever? Why would I ever? And as you think about that, the next question we would ask is, if the Bible tells us to confess our sins to one another that we might be forgiven, why is it that we are hesitant to confess our sins? It's because we have an expectation of what would follow such confession. Do you imagine if you were to confess your sin publicly that you would be greeted by the warm embrace of God that enshrouds us with His love and His grace through an expression of the church, do you think you will be celebrated as you would be celebrated in heaven for turning away from unrighteousness and coming to God? Do you think that as you read in verse 7 that there is rejoicing taking place in heaven that you would see that in the church? Or do you think you would be greeted by hesitant people that would say, maybe you'll do better next time? If the latter is our expectation, why is that what you expect? This reveals something about human nature, doesn't it? One of the things that we do is we think about how we would respond And we push that expectation off on everyone else. The reason you think you would be greeted by that second response is because that's how you know you would respond to someone else if they repented of sin. Now let's bring it back to the text. What does the church truly celebrate? What are we truly an expression of? Do we celebrate as they do in heaven? Or do we celebrate like the Pharisees did when they saw sinners drawing near to Christ? There's only one response we can have to a message like this, and that is to call out to God and ask that He would give us a heart that would see, that is passionate about sinners and sees the things that we should rejoice over. Because there is not one of us that does not live with sin in our lives as a part of our lives. And God doesn't tell us that we should celebrate the sin, but what He does tell us is that we can celebrate turning away from it. Because we know that it is not possible to turn away from sin by our own strength. It requires a shepherd that would wander off and leave the 99 that he might come after us, that he might put us on his shoulders, that he might carry us, that he might rejoice for us. And with that, we have the entire message of Christmas baked in to this parable. 
God exchanged all of the glories of heaven so that he could dwell on earth as a human among man so that he might identify with us so that I could preach this message and I could tell you the story of the gospel that in the beginning God created everything perfectly but it fell because of man's sinfulness. And the problem with sin is that sin separates us from God and there's nothing that we can do to cover sin up. Sin demands the payment. The consequence of sin is death. And Christ came to die for us. So that whoever would put their faith in Jesus Christ would not die, but would have everlasting life. Loved ones, that's something to rejoice over. That we can rejoice in everlasting life through the work of our Savior. I really want to appeal to you this morning. I know we're a small crowd. A lot of people are out traveling. But I want to appeal to you this morning. I remember the things that made me hesitant to come before the church and ask to be a part of them. I felt like I wasn't good enough. I felt like I didn't know them well enough. I want to appeal to you this morning to realize that the church's example to follow is not what we have seen through the generations in the past. But it is only the Word of God and the teachings of Jesus Christ. We will never be good enough to ask to be a part of a church. Charles Spurgeon once said, if you ever find a perfect church, please don't join it because you are sure to ruin it. That's a paraphrase. The church welcomes your brokenness, your incompleteness. Not only that, you've found your home. If you're God's sheep, you belong in His flock. It's right where you belong. For whatever reason, people continue to put off a decision to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no reason to wait. For whatever reason... Christians continue to not respond to the simple message that God rejoices over them repenting of sin. It doesn't matter how long you've been a part of the church. Restoration is for you too. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for sending your Son amongst us that we might know what real restoration is for making it possible and giving it to us. God, I thank you for bringing me into my community and for giving me this home and this family and the love that I know by these people. Father, I pray that as we raise our voices up together that you'd be glorified, that you would help me feel closeness with each one of them,
Father, I pray that if anyone has hesitated to make a decision to place their faith in you, that you would give them the confidence to do that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray.